Hello and welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with policy voices from around the world. Policy Voices talking policy choices. Maybe that is life, but it never evolved or may never lived the oceans in other worlds. Uh, we suspect this might be the case, that there are life forms in, in other places, that life is a natural thing that can happen when you have the ingredients, that how this life evolves into complex beings like ourselves or yeah. dinosaurs, yeah. that might be a bit more tricky. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome back to Policy Voices, Friends of Europe's weekly podcast on current affairs. I'm Katerina Villanova, your host. In what is bound to be a complex year with key elections across the world, kicking off already this Saturday with Taiwan, we wanted to start 2024 a bit differently. Before we dive into all the elections taking place this year, the ongoing war in Ukraine, the escalation of conflict in the Middle East, EU enlargement, we want to zoom out. Zoom out quite a bit, in fact. In today's episode, we want to go to space, and we want to bring you with us. Ryan Vugdalic, Program Officer for the Space Matter Initiative at Friends of Europe, spoke to Guillaume Anglade Escudé, an astrophysicist who led the team that discovered the Proxima b exoplanet orbiting Proxima Centauri, our closest neighboring star. This discovery landed Guillaume in Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world. He was named one of the 10 most prominent scientists worldwide by Science Magazine, and Guillaume is also a European young leader. In their conversation, Ryan and Guillaume walk us through the significance of the discovery of Proxima b, and they also tackle one of the greatest questions all of us has asked at some point. Are we alone in the universe? So stay on that side to hear Guillaume's thoughts on one of the greatest questions facing humanity. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Policy Voices. My name is Ryan Vugdalic. I lead the Space Policy Program here at Friends of Europe. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Guillaume Anglada Escudé. Guillaume, welcome and thank you for making the time. Thanks, Ryan. Of course, my pleasure. Um, so for people who might not know you yet, you're an astronomer. You've been in different universities in Germany, in the UK, in the US as well. And of course, in Spain, where you currently um, are based. And this is also where you got your PhD in Barcelona in 2007. But the reason you're most well-known for in the general public is for a discovery you made in 2016. I'm not going to say too much about this yet, but just an interesting fact that I saw is that the year after that, in 2017, you were named in the Times Magazine 100 Most Influential People. We were talking about this just before uh, we started uh, recording, but it is interesting not so much in proving anything about the science or the relevance of your, your, your discovery, but also how palatable and accessible to people um, it was and how it got people dreaming a little bit about space. But before we talk about this discovery, I wanted to ask you a very simple question. What inspired you to pursue a career in astronomy and exoplanet research? Why did you want to become an astronomer? Do you remember? I do remember. I don't know, probably I'm, I was 12 or 14, something around that age. Um, but I liked science fiction movies. I liked looking at the sky, I wanted to see things through the telescope. And at some point I also liked physics because this is how you get 
into astrophysics or astronomy these days, um, just understanding how the thing works, how things work at at very fundamental level, understand things at um, at uh, the, the basic principles of things. So one thing combined with the other led me to astronomy. I also read a few books that were very influential to me and made me take a decision. One is uh, that I think is was crucial at that po at the time. It's one. It's called Red Mars from a writer called Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, which is still, uh, you can read it, it's about how in a possible future, near future, is hard science fiction, um, it would be the colonization of Mars. So how the first settlement would be set up in an international context, there's a lot of geopolitics in that, in that novel as well. This is something that also interested me, is not only find out things, but how, um, how society or how the, the, the global effort is actually implemented in practice. And it's not only about the science itself, it's about um, how people relate, how people organize themselves, how countries, um, organizations, how you can make things happen and how they actually happen. Um, that's also very interesting. So yeah, I was interested in physics, but I also have a bit of a, of a thing for, for politics and, and, and economics and these kind of things. Any particular science fiction um movie or TV show or something that as a kid that you, you really liked? Yeah, as a kid, well, there was not that much things, those, that many things those times. Uh, I could say like um, Odyssey uh, 2001, but yeah. uh, I would be lying. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was more into Star Wars. Okay, uh, yeah, so was I. Those so kind was of I. things. And then after that, I, I got into, I, I think I've seen most of whatever is available from before 2000. After that, um, there are a lot of movies these days. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I like uh, the science fiction yeah. style, uh, not only because of looking at the stars, but um, how you basically formulate um, a, a, a situation with how you extrapolate science and how that shapes relations mm -hmm. with, with people. Um, for example, one, one TV show that I like a lot is uh, called The Expanse. It's again also is about the expansion of, the, of, the, of humanity in the, in the solar system with all the problems that it carries, yeah. uh, the, sa the same inequality actually yeah. <laughs> transported somewhere else yeah. and basically could it's geopolitics at a, at a different scale. So uh, I, I like these kind of things to put uh, with this new technology or this new thing, how actually the, the society would, would go around it. But in your work you go even further actually because the discovery that I was teasing a little bit about in my introduction is about a planet that's outside even of the solar system. So in 2016 you're leading a team of astronomers and it led to the confirmed discovery of Proxima Centauri b, which is the closest potentially habitable exoplanet to Earth. So that's a lot of words to unpack here. Could you tell us what is an exoplanet and how do you define potentially habitable? Well, good question. Uh, I'll try to give first the short answer and then we can develop a bit things. So um, an exoplanet is a planet that is orbiting a star, that it's not the sun. So when we think on the universe, it's useful to, to get the idea or to get a bit of the scale of things. So we have the solar system, moon, earth system, our solar system, which is about a few hours light time. And then the next star is very far away. So the space is empty basically. And now you have the first star and you can think about stars like islands, right? And the stars have their, the, the star, the, the thing that you see on the nighttime, and then they can have their planetary systems, but very small, so it's kind of isolated. Don't think about um, stars like going in an excursion, like when we go to Mars, which is a few months, to go to the next star would be tens of thousands of years. 
So it's a completely different scale. So we are into this thing of looking for exoplanets because um, we want to understand how, especially our planetary system, understand planet formation, how Earth came to be as it is today, um, how, uh, how common is life, for example, what are the necessary conditions for life to emerge that tells us where our place in cosmos and eventually maybe detect evidence for life uh, beyond the solar system. Um, and looking for these planets that might be potentially, and I'm using a lot of conditional, might be potentially habitable, <laughs> is something that we want to, we are looking for. Um, and when we say potentially habitable, basically we think these are planets that have a number of characteristics, characteristics similar to our own. So temperature, pressure, these kinds of things, yes. right? Basically what we can measure these days is how large they are in terms of mass or size. Um, radius, so for example, this exoplanet is in mass is very similar to our own, mm. and then the temperature of the planet at the surface, mm. we can also estimate it because of using a bit a bit of mathematics, but not too complicated. Not many assumptions are in it, and we are looking on to planets that are terrestrial, let's say the same size as as our own, and are in is temperate. Um, regions in the planetary systems that you can get it from the star if the star is very bright mm -hmm. these temperate regions are very far if the star is a small like Proxima actually Proxima Centauri is a small star then this, these regions are very close to the star um, and in this particular case we have this planet that is orbiting very close to the star but it, it, it's in this temperate this is what it means potentially habitable planet not more than that so yeah. don't, we don't speculate yet more we know a little bit more than we knew mm -hmm. at the time and we, why is that such a challenge because um, it's relatively easy to, to see stars and to find stars. I can just go outside at night and see them myself. But a planet doesn't emit light. So how do you find planets around a star? We would like to, to get pictures of planets, even if it's just a dot of light. But this is not how we can do it, because the planets don't emit light by themselves, at least in the optical. Yeah. And they do la emit light in the infrared. But we are not detecting that yet. What we do is basically use indirect methods, indirect methods. So we look at the star. And then the planet usually has some effect on the star itself. Exactly. If it goes in front of it, you would see that every 12 days or 11 days, the, 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 the star dims a bit for a couple hours. And then after 11 days, it comes back. So that tells you that there is something that is going every time in a very precise timing yeah. that, that, uh, in front of the star that tells us that there is a planet. And then there's another method which measures how the star moves. This is the method that we used for this case. So what you see is you measure the star. What you measure is the spectrum of the star, the light spread over all its colors. And you see a lot of features in the stellar spectrum, absorption lines. And then you can see these things moving at very small level. So at, mid, at meter per second level, we call it, which means at walking speed, we can measure velocities of a star at that level. And if there is a planet, and it's a, if it's a big planet, the star will move a lot. But if it's a small planet, the, the motion will be very, very small. And in this case, then motions is really walking pace. Um, and well, the technology took some time to reach this point. But this is why now, nowadays we can detect systematically these um, Earth-like planets, or not Earth-like, but similar to our own. That, that is so incredible, right? Because, I mean, as you said, it's those, those stars, it's the closest, but it's so far away. And we're observing it from the Earth. And the, the level of detail of the machinery you need to use. I was reading for your PhD that, that you were, I mean, I, I can't understand any of it, of course, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, 
But the level, I, I know at some point they mentioned a coin of two euros put on the moon that you'd be looking at from the earth. This is a kind of angular size we're talking about, right? For the level of precision you need. Yes, so that's a technique that we would like to use at some point that's called astrometry to measure this motion of stars. Yeah. And that would be equivalent to measure, yeah, motion of rocks yeah. or a small pebble on the moon. Um, this is huge distance to the moon, so 400,000 kilometers. Um, in this case, we are using another technique, it's called Doppler effect, that when the, 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 the emitter comes to you, the, the, the light seems a bit more energetic, it's yeah. called it's blue shifted, yeah. and when the source moves away from you, the light looks a bit red shifted, yeah. and then we see this motion is periodic, it repeats, it tells you how long it takes the planet to go around the star, this is what we call the orbital period, what would be one year in that planet, for example in Proxima V, the planet goes around the star every 11 days, so it's a very short year. And then how large is this motion tells you how large is the how massive, let's say, is the planet. So all of that was in 2016. That was a, a really big deal that it, and it made you, at least temporarily, quite really famous. But now if we zoom back to 2023, um, are there any recent developments in the field of exoplanet research? Um, have we change our understanding of the universe? Is there anything um, that you have in mind that's happened recently? So from, from the exoplanet research, so what we have been doing, not myself only, but other people also, I have to remark that I didn't discover the planet myself. No, of course. It was a team. It was a whole team. It was a team effort. It was, I was a coordinator, um, so, or, or the leader, if you want to say it, um, but it was not just me. I would say probably around 200 people were involved at different levels, yeah. technical level. So after that, and because the techniques are already in place, we have discovered quite more, many more of these kind of planets. So we know about 50 of these kind of objects. So for Proxima, we cannot measure its size because it doesn't go in front of the star. It has to be, the orbit has to be aligned to our line of sight and it doesn't happen in Proxima. But we, there are other similar planetary systems further out um, where we can both measure the mass of the planets with the technique I described and also the size because they go in front of the star. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we know that these planets are most likely um, rocky um, in composition, probably also contain quite a bit, a large amounts of water mm -hmm. because the way they formed, um, the theories and the densities we measure from these planets are consistent with rock combined with water, uh, large amounts of it. Mm -hmm. um, so. Instead of Earth, maybe this planet is more similar to, in our solar system, a moon of Saturn that's called Titan. Mm. That it has a lot of hydrocarbons and has a lot of very thick um, layer of ice. Um, it's like the crust of the planet is made of ice and you can have like 200 kilometers deep ocean uh, or in that case is ice. But um, so this kind of planets, um, we know this not from Proxima itself, but it's basically looking at different instances of similar planetary systems and we are learning this. Um, since then also on Proxima, there, are, there is evidence for at least two more planets. One smaller than that, size of Mars, in a closer in orbit, and maybe one um, a, bit, a bit more similar to Neptune, let's say, um, in an orbit with a few years period. So it's a full planetary system. We are learning this. And yeah, we are kind of getting the picture how these planets look like. And uh, yeah, so this comes from basically making more discoveries and putting things in context. I also wanted to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, the habitable zone and potential life. I think there's a strong mis misconception in the public 
that we are doing this so that we can move there and that we can give up on our planet. Is no. that the case? No, 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 no. That, uh, the, no, the, forget about it. This has nothing to do with it because there's no, there's no, there's no way, at least. So we, cannot, we can barely go to the moon, yeah. which is next door. It's one, one second, yeah. one second like this. And we're talking something that it's four years in lifetime. That's a completely different scale, and we don't even know how, how life would be on, on one of these planets, if there is life at all. Um, would be something very different, different, probably very toxic and aggressive to us. Yeah. So we don't want to go there. But it's more about understanding ourselves better. Is that, is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's also the fundamental question of yeah. if we are alone. Uh, if what do you think, actually? I would say the conservative approach to this these days is that we are probably not the only life form in the universe. Um, however, Earth, we know uh, the solar system has been a very stable and quiet place for a very long time. The sun is a relatively quiet star. We have a moon, which is not very common, this very large moon. And that stabilizes the rotation of the planet and causes the planet to be dynamic, to have plate tectonics, to, to, to have a lot of volcanism that the seas as well. The seas, and there's a lot of motion. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, just the right kind of planet to have a dynamic environment that it's not so, too violent yeah. and it's not too quiet so yeah. things can happen so this all these things might be um, very rare um, so maybe that is life but it never evolved or may, never lived the oceans in other worlds uh, we suspect this might be the case that there are life forms in in other places that life is a natural thing that can happen when you have the ingredients yeah. but how this life evolves into complex beings like ourselves or yeah. dinosaurs, yeah. that might be a bit more tricky. Because you say, so in the universe, can I, can I push you a little bit and ask, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, would there be life? We, we would think so. Would so, think so the galaxy has about 200 billion stars. Um, and, there are, and now we know that it's almost one to one, that each star has one or more yeah. planets that are in these temperate regions, maybe not all stars, but 80% or 50% doesn't matter if 200 billion we are talking about 100 billion of chances and and the elements that life needs are very common so water is everywhere this is hydrogen and oxygen Di carbon dioxide we see it in everywhere as well in other kinds of planets that are easier to to characterize because this is what we are the frontier now is towards not only detecting the planets but understanding them and I, I would say these days the frontier is in 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 this sense is what's happening now is to first to start to understand and characterize atmospheres of these planets i can tell you how how we do how we do that i also want to ask you because i've met a few scientists who work on on different aspects of, of astronomy and i'm always curious would you like to go to space if you could is that something you would dream about i, I used to you used to not anymore no I, I, yeah but you know um i'm i don't know if it's because of the age but I would like to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> I, um, I would be ready to go to space, yes, to the orbit and spend maybe a few weeks or something like this. Not very long time and go to live in another planet. That would be Mars, for example, that people are discussing. I may want to go, but not be the first one pioneer when the thing is more or less established, uh, safe, and yeah, I can go there and cooperate. And if I don't go alone, I would be happy for example, mm -hmm. to go with a lot of uh, team of people or 
with a group or being the pioneers, but not by myself, let's say, I uh, would think that it would be important to have a good company. Social connections yeah. as well. Um, maybe as a, as a last point, um, so I've printed a few pictures of the, of the Euclid mission that, that came out um, just a couple days ago. I'm sorry, the resolution is, is terrible, even though those those supposed, uh, supposed to be really high resolution. Um, so I know it's not your field, it's not your expertise, so I, I wouldn't ask you about the, the specifics of the mission, but maybe circling back to, to my first question and you know you watching Star Wars and other movies and dreaming about the stars, what, what does that make you think about when you see this? Yeah, I see, I see different things that I used to see because it's like the eye of the expert, right? So we see galaxies, spirals, beautiful pictures taken in different colors and the composition is good. I also know that even these nebulas that are shown here, when if you were there, you would not see anything. Yeah. This nebula is very tenuous. I mean, this one is not visible light, right? This, uh, no, it's visible light, it's but it's visible. very enhanced and yeah. lo very long exposures. Um, but I see other things in these pictures, apart from the stars, that is kind of the most obvious thing. And this is, for example, what the CLIP mission is, is about. It's not looking at these stars. This, this is noise for them, the, the team. It's yeah. a cosmology mission. But if you look carefully, apart from the stars, you will see that there are these small blobs that look like uh, fuzzy things. These are the galaxies. There are some of them that you can see it clearly. It's a galaxy spiral. Yes, and, yeah. But actually, all these very small galaxies is what the Euclid mission is about. And mm. it's fascinating when you stare long enough. If the more you stare on a field, and this has been done with Hubble and other instruments, the more of these galaxies you see towards the beginning of time, right? The farthest we can see something called the cosmic background radiation. And we don't know what happened before between that time where the universe was hot and was cooling down and when the first galaxies formed. And Euclid is looking at those times. Mm -hmm. So it's exposing, it's looking at this very deep in back in time with the James Webb Space Telescope as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, actually the science, the most interesting thing I see here, yeah, there are these nebula, but I look at these background objects yeah. that are these tiny fuzzy things and say, oh, this is a galaxy. Look, there's a spiral here. There's a binary galaxy. There are something called gravitational lenses. If yeah. you pay enough attention, you will see like double images of some galaxies because there's another galaxy in front yeah. making a lens. This is where, where the science and actually the, I see another level, of, another layer of beauty in the pictures. That's fantastic. And if, for people listening to us, you can find those pictures on the ESA website or even on Instagram. They all publish them on Instagram and they are really, they're so beautiful. Really, I would encourage everybody to, to take a look and I think get a better sense of why, you know, you can get so excited about space and the beauty of all these objects and shiny stars and planets and galaxies. Um, but uh, Guilhem, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. It's, it was, it's really inspiring. I really t love talking to scientists. And um, maybe one last note um, to end on is that, you know, maybe you don't need to be a scientist to get excited. You said at first it was just science fiction or, or dreaming about space. And I would really encourage people to, to look at those pictures and to, to imagine could be, what could be out there. What do, what do you think? Any, any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that looking into, into cosmos also real, makes you realize that um, the universe is going to continue whether, whether we like it or not, or whether we take care of ourselves or not. Or whether we are here or not even. Yes. So, um, so it's important that we actually take care of our planet so we can keep looking at the universe. Um, we be aware that the, the universe is a very big place and we are very lucky to be in this place and we have to, 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 to take care of it. I think it's important it's the same vision that some astronauts when they go to space look back to earth everything looks peaceful and and beautiful they don't see borders right um so we cannot go all of us to space but we can look at it and and 
a bit, be, be a bit more humble and in connection with 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 uh, with with the universe um, and probably we are not alone and maybe somebody else is looking at us and asking the same questions you just heard ryan vogdalich program officer for the space matter initiative at friends of europe speaking to the astrophysicist guillem anglades Cude. if you are curious about the pictures guillem was describing you can find a link in today's episode's notes as always, we would love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can find Friends of Europe on all social media channels and leave us a comment. I'm Katerina Villanova and I will be with you again next week. Until then, have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.